if you would, bow with me in prayer, um, and then we're going to open God's Word together. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for this time. Uh, we do pray as we just have sung. But, uh, everything that is done, said and, and done and sung and prayed here today would be a sweet, sweet sound to your ear, that it would be well-pleasing in your sight. We pray that as we open your Word, that you'd be glorified. We pray uh, as we, we point to the eternal truth of what you're doing, that uh, your name would be lifted up. We pray that we would see more clearly uh, the great love that you have for us. We pray that you would uh, remind us uh, of the ways that you love us and care for us. And uh, we pray that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, if you would, just listen to the reading of God's word as we begin. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 19, and uh, what we celebrate today, uh, whether you're aware, depending on your background or, or where you've come from or different churches, uh, as we come today and we worship today, this is often what we call Palm Sunday. Next week we will gather together and celebrate Easter, and I'm so excited for this week and, and how that leads up to that. And so we call it Palm Sunday because Jesus came into Jerusalem the week before he would be crucified. And they had palm branches and they were waving them and they were throwing them down before him as he came in. And it's often called the triumphal entry. And so listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent ahead went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known of this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so Jesus coming in uh, the week before he would cru be crucified, the crowds were gathered and they were proclaiming his name and they were excited about him coming. But as he was coming in and as Luke tells us, they were totally missing what was happening. They were so excited that they thought the Messiah was going to come and be a religious leader that was going to lead them to freedom. He was, he was going to come riding in and, and lead the charge and things were going to be great. And as Jesus comes in, he stops and he weeps that they're not understanding what's really happening. They're not understanding that the Messiah has come to lay down his life for us. 
that he wasn't going to come in the way they were expecting him to come, that freedom ultimately wasn't going to come through uh, military might. It wasn't going to come in the way that they thought it would. And they had good reason to hope it was coming. They lived under the horrible, oppressive rule of Rome. And the idea that the Messiah was now here and he was going to come and he was going to set them free and he was going to bring this freedom that they had long yearned for and they were missing all of it. And Jesus weeps and he says, oh, if you had only known what was actually happening, if you only knew how peace really comes. And he knew that there was a huge misunderstanding in that moment about what freedom really is. And that's what we're going to talk about today, this morning. And we've been in this short series for a few weeks uh, leading up to Easter on how the cross changes the way we see everything. And today we're going to kind of shine a light on how it changes the way that we see freedom. Because just in the way that the people there were missing freedom is often in the ways that we often miss freedom. We love freedom in our country. We love to talk about it and praise it and raise it up. And there's nothing wrong with that. Freedom is a good thing. We should be thankful to God that we live in a country that's free, that we have the freedoms that we enjoy. I'm not at all saying that's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. And it's a good reason that we say it's good. And the reasons we talk about it often are very good. But what happens a lot of times is we begin to to get an idea of freedom that's not fully the freedom that God gives us. The fullness of the freedom that is made available through what Jesus has done for us. And that's what I want us to think about together this morning. And so as we think about that, I I want us to think about how it changes, uh, the cross changes our understanding of freedom. I want to be clear to say that freedom is good and that God calls us to a freedom. Uh, Paul is saying Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. And that's echoed throughout Scripture over and over. But we need to have an understanding of what he's really talking about when he calls us to this freedom. And he says we have this freedom and it's available to us. And so this morning we're going to do this pretty simply, pretty easy, simple, short outline that we're going to think about today. First way I want us to think about this is just the ways, uh, even though we want and we value freedom, how we often look for it in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. It's a good thing and we want it and we value it and we're seeking it, but we often look for it in the wrong places and the wrong ways. And then secondly, we're going to consider how true freedom comes from the cross of Jesus. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And so let's think about this idea of freedom together. The way we're going to do that, we're going to look at a passage in Jeremiah 32 that Dennis read to us just a second ago. And then we're also going to look at a couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we even get to that, let's just think big idea for a moment about this idea of freedom and what we mean. I was reading a lot of articles and studies and different things where people talk about freedom and what they want out of it and what they mean by it and what it looks like. And I read all this stuff this week, all these different things. I was trying to just get a handle on what it is that we're so excited about when we talk about freedom in our culture. And one thing that kind of struck me as I read is universally pretty much everything I read and I looked at is that everybody agrees that freedom is a good thing. I really didn't see anything critiquing the idea that we want freedom. It was pretty much like, yes, everyone agrees that freedom's good. And so that was the starting place. And I went, okay, yeah, but then how do we define it in our culture? We really love this thing that we're talking about, but how do we define it in our culture? And and this is a broad 
uh, definition, kind of our culture and where we are today. Uh, maybe it doesn't encapsulate perfectly the way you think of freedom, and that's okay. We'll come back to that in a second. But I just want to give you a big definition that I think is fair for our culture today. And this is kind of what it came up with, just reading a bunch of different things this week. Self-determination without limits. Self-determination without limits, and that I get to determine who I am and what I do and what I say and where I go and where I work and the things I do, and nobody can really tell me what that's going to be. I get to do that. Uh, We would, I think, agree with a lot of those things, that we have freedom of speech and we can say things and we can talk and we live in a country that uh, affords us that. I don't know if you would agree completely with that definition, but I think as a culture, as a whole, we, we embrace that pretty well. I'm free uh, to kind of do what I want. Um, It's not a new idea. It's not just something that's happening in our culture today, although I think a lot of people would agree with that. It's actually been around for a while. As I was searching different things on freedom this week, I came upon uh, the Rolling Stones playing on, I think it was Ed Sullivan, 50 years ago. I'm free to do what I want at any old time, right? Isn't that self-determination without limits? It's not something just of our culture. It's been around for a while. And so this idea of, of freedom that we hold to, that I want to do what I want when I want, and I don't want people to tell me. I want to be free to decide who I am. Uh, there's this new phrase that I keep hearing probably the last year or two. It may have been around longer than that, but I've heard it a lot lately. I need to find my truth. Have you heard that? I've heard several people tell me that. You have your truth and I have my truth. I need to find my truth. Right? That's a ridiculous statement if you don't know. But if you say that, let's talk about it. I'm not making fun of you. But the the definition of truth is it's objective. And when you now say it's now the subjective thing that I have, you're actually going against the actual definition of truth. It doesn't actually make sense. Right? They can't both have two competing truths that are both... Uh, in conflict with each other. Does that make sense? But we say that, and I think the reason we've embraced that and we say that frequently is we want to do what we want when we want. And we don't want anybody to tell us otherwise, so we'll just say it's my truth. And so we, we cling to that idea of freedom and we praise that and we talk about it a lot. But I want you to think about uh, what would happen if we actually lived that out completely. And use maybe an analogy for a second. What would that look like? Uh, self-determination without limits if I operated that way with my children. I want you to just think about that for a second. Right? Some of you know my son Quinn. <laughs> He's seven. Uh, when he was probably four, three, four. Uh, Quinn's not really afraid of much of anything. Uh, he likes to try things. He likes to try, like, it was kind of scary. We lived in a house with a swimming pool and Quinn couldn't swim, but he thought he could swim. Right? That's kind of a scary thing. Right? Self-determination without limits is, well, he can jump in the pool whenever he wants. No, he can't. I'm not going to let him do that, right? If I let him do that, that's going to lead to some big problems pretty quickly. There's a lot of things that we wouldn't let him do. There's still a lot of things we don't let him do. Because he thinks he can do them even though he can't. And if we let him operate with self-determination without limits, I think we can all agree it would be a disaster pretty quickly. But what I would say to you this morning as we think about society's definition of freedom, that we're all a lot like Quinnis. If we seek to operate fully on self-determination without limits, we're quickly going to be like Quinn was around that swimming pool. We're going to jump in and we're going to sink real quickly if there's not someone to kind of pull us back. 
Or there's going to be some huge problems when we get into that. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if everyone operates on their own way of operating and I'm free to do whatever I want and you're free to do whatever you want, it's just a matter of time before we start to bump up against each other. If you think you have a freedom to do some things that infringe upon my freedom to do some things, how does that work? It doesn't. And so what we extol as being this great freedom actually doesn't work and it causes all kinds of problems real quickly. And so I want us just to consider the ways that we miss this idea of freedom in our culture, how it causes problems when we begin to seek and do things not in the way that they work. And I say work in the way that God has designed the world to be. And the first thing I would say to you is this idea of self-determination without limits, that I decide what is true for me and what I'm going to do and no one can tell me otherwise, is, is the huge problem we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You're operating as if you are the center of the world and you're not the center of the world. And that's a big problem when we seek to operate that way. And so the Bible would say it this way, that we are created to worship God, to have him at the center of all things, and then to love other people out of an overflow of that, right? To love God and to love people, that summarizes God's laws and the way he operates and what he's told us. But when we make self-determination without limits and it's all what I want, then I'm forgetting God and I'm forgetting other people. And I've moved into making the center of my world revolve around me and what I think a created being is what Romans one would say. We're professing to be wise, but we've come fools and we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And it causes all sorts of problems when we operate that way. When we begin to live and operate as if we are the center of the world, we're going against the way that we were designed and we're now worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And that's going to cause all sorts of problems. The biggest being when we do that, we're seeking to fill an eternal uh, need in our life, namely God being at the center of all things with temporal things and those things will never satisfy us. And so if we operate in that way, we're going to be chasing something that we'll actually never catch. And it's going to cause all sorts of problems. And so we live in this illusion that to truly be free means that I do whatever I want when I want. And it's all about me. But the problem is that won't make you free because it's just going to lead to futility. It's going to lead to problems. It's going to lead to seeking and chasing after things that will never fulfill you. So my question is, is that freedom? You're free to chase after things that will never satisfy you. Sounds exhausting to me. It doesn't sound like freedom at all. And in fact, the Bible would say it's not, that it will cause all sorts of issues. But the second problem with that definition that our culture embraces is not only are we worshiping created things that can never satisfy us, we're, we're operating as if we're the center of the world and it's all about me. But you weren't created to be all about yourself. And again, that's going to lead to a futility and a problem and a struggle. But we like that definition because we have been so discipled in an individualistic culture. You've probably heard me say this before. I think you can back this up with a lot of good reason and a lot of good things that we can see. But we live in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. We extol, we, we praise uh, individual freedom. It's for me to decide and no one can tell me otherwise. 
And so that's why we get this idea that freedom means no one can tell me anything and I'm free to do what I want whenever I want. And so we struggle, but the Bible says that doesn't work, that we're going to run into all sorts of problems, that our greatest joy won't be found in just being all about ourselves. That our greatest peace will not be found by continuing to seek things, uh, temporal things in front of me, whatever comes uh, into my heart that I want and going after those things. The Bible tells us that doesn't work. That that's not what true freedom is. Now, you may sit here and you may hear that and you may go, okay, yeah, I'm with you. I know enough of the Bible. Hey, I'm here. I'm here on a Sunday. I'm listening. I'm with you. I agree. But I want you to consider that there's a couple ways that this makes its way into the church as well. Maybe those ways I've framed it, you go, yeah, I see that pretty clearly. I'm not doing that or I agree with you. That's not the best. But think about some of the ways it's more subtle that it makes it into the church. And the first way I would tell you is that we see Jesus as a, a, a cosmic bellhop. That Jesus is here to help us. Right? That he gives us some good teaching. He says some wise things. He seems to be a cool guy who's got his stuff together. He can probably help me. But we operate under the, the thought that God is there to kind of help me with some new information and some things in my life that will help me get along my way. But he's not actually <clears throat> Lord over my life. And so I treat him that way. I show up on a Sunday when I feel like it. I open my Bible maybe when I'm really down and I need some words of encouragement Maybe I talk about spiritual things when things aren't going well or I need some help. But what I'm really doing is I'm still operating under that I am Lord of my life and I'll kind of take some of those things in as needed. Jesus is my guru. It's the guy I go to when I'm in trouble. When I'm struggling. But I want you to understand that you're still operating under this idea that freedom is not coming under the lordship of Jesus in every way, in every part of your life. But that I'll just kind of pick and choose what I need and what I want. I'm still at the center and I'm still operating under the thing of I will do what I want whenever I want, because that's what freedom really is. And I'll just take a little religion, a little Jesus. I'll sprinkle him on. He'll be the seasoning of my life when I need it. But when we do that, we're still seeing freedom as me at the center and Jesus is over here. It's like the, the bumper sticker. Jesus is my co-pilot, right? When I'm in trouble and I don't know where to go, I look over and go, hey, where are we going, right? But it's not what God calls us to. That's not the picture of what it is. And, and I would say it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Uh, C.S. Lewis said we don't need better information we need to be made new. I don't know. I don't need Jesus to tell me here's some good ways that you can live and some things you can apply to your life. I need Jesus to come and save me. I need a new heart. I need him to be Lord of my life in everything. But because of the way we think about freedom, we often push back against that. I can't give up all of it. I got to keep control of this. This is my life and the way I'm going to do things and I'll ask you when I need help. Or maybe another way is a little better is that we, we come to Jesus and we say, yes, I am a sinner and I need to be saved and I need Christ in my life and I know I'm a mess. It's a step better. I don't need better information. I actually need a Savior. I need to be made new. 
And we say, yes, that's true, and that's right. And so then we say, yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I've invited God into my heart. We use all the language of our time. The Bible never asks you to invite God into your heart, by the way. But we say that a lot. He says, come follow me and make me Lord of your life. He doesn't say, invite me into your heart. He doesn't ask you to pray a prayer to be saved. He says to repent and to believe and to come after me. But oftentimes we talk that way because that's, that's our culture. Invite him in. He's in your heart. He's your personal savior. He's with you in this. And now it's you and God. Right? I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, really? What church are you involved in? Well, I don't actually go to church. But I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay, well, Jesus says, if you love me, that you're going to obey my commands and you're going to love my disciples and you're going to love my church, but you don't have a church. We're kind of doing the same thing. I want my personal freedom to do it the way I see it. Me and God are good. I don't need anybody else. And so what we do is we're doing the same thing. We're still holding on to our freedom. It's me and God. I got that. I don't need anybody else in my life. I don't need anybody else to encourage me or rebuke me, or come alongside me, or to correct me. All the things, by the way, that the Bible positively tells us as believers we should be doing. Because we want to hold fast to this freedom. Right? Me and God, and we're good, and we don't need anybody else. And I'd say to you, that's a byproduct of our culture. Self-determination without limits. I do what I want when I want. More than it is following Jesus faithfully. And so we all do it in different ways. We all seek uh, to just kind of continue to hold on to this ideal that our, our society says of what freedom really is while missing the freedom that Jesus calls us to. So what does true freedom look like? What does the cross do that changes the way we look at all of that? And so I want you to look with me, if you would, at Jeremiah chapter 32. And as we do, as we look in Jeremiah, let me just set the scene a little bit for you. Jeremiah uh, is a prophet in Judah right before uh, Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom, are split. Israel gets taken out. Judah survives for a while longer, which includes Jerusalem. They had a few good kings in there. We're still 600 years before Jesus would come, if you're a big picture of the Bible. But they're about to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And the reason is, even though people like Jeremiah, that God sends to his people and he tells them to repent and return to me and follow me, they ignore him all along the way. He continues to be faithful to call people to God and they continue to ignore him. And so God tells Jeremiah, I'm about to I'm about to end this. I'm about to destroy uh, Jerusalem. I'm going to let Babylon come in and they're going to take them out and they're going to do this. But he gives them this promise in the middle of it. And like a lot of Old Testament promises, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. He is going to bring them back to the land, as he tells them, and he is going to save them. But there's a couple things here he begins to talk about everlasting covenant. Things that he's going to continue to do that are in the future. And you can tell by the language. And so he says this to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 36. Now, therefore, says the Lord the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand, the king of Babylon, by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they do come back. They get taken out and they get scattered, but later they will come back to Jerusalem. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me. Notice he says forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing Good to them, and I will plant them in this land and in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And so he makes this promise. And he's looking ahead to this covenant that he calls that it's going to be eternal. He's talking about this covenant that's going to come, that's going to have eternal ramifications. And he begins to make this promise to God's people. And I'm going to do this thing of I'm going to give them a new heart. Let me give them a a new way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And he's making these promises. And so when we read the promises that God gives in the Old Testament to Israel, there's some very clear uh, fulfillments to those people at those times. He is going to bring Israelites back to this land. He's going to call them back after they're scattered from Babylon. They're going to get to go back and they're going to rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah is going to come and they're going to put these things back together in Ezra. And you're going to see this and you see it in those books. It happens. And God is faithful and he does what he says. But then there's also some promises here that he says have eternal ramifications. And I want you to understand when we read in the Old Testament and God makes promises to people and he makes these eternal promises and he talks about the people of God and what that looks like. Paul clearly tells us in Galatians that he's now talking about all people of all time that put their faith in Jesus. He says at the end of Galatians 3, that if you're now in Christ, you are sons of Abraham and you're heir to these promises. And so I want you to understand the everlasting pieces that he's talking about. There's only one people of God. And it is those by faith who trust what God is doing. In the Old Testament, it was those that trusted in what God was going to do in Jesus. And now it's those that trust in what he has done in Jesus. And we're all saved the same way, by faith through the grace of God. And so he makes these promises here that are absolutely for us. When he talks about this everlasting covenant, this promise that he's going to make. They shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. What is he talking about when he says that? What does that mean? He's pointing ahead to the new covenant and what Jesus will do on the cross. Right? This whole series is talking about what, how the cross changes all that. And he's talking about an everlasting covenant. The new covenant. The new way in which we now see fully how we respond to God. And it's by grace, through faith, and what Jesus does. And so he's looking ahead. He says, a time is coming. And I'm going to make this covenant that has eternal ramifications. And you're going to get a new heart. And you're going to get a new way of seeing things. 
And I'm going to put the fear of me in you. Remember, fear is not cowering in the corner, but it becomes this reverential awe of truly understanding who God is and what he's done for us. He says, I'm going to put that in your heart that you may not turn from me and I'm going to continue to do good to you. And so he's looking ahead and he's saying, I'm going to do this work that I'm going to fundamentally change the way you operate. I'm not going to give you just some new information. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to change you from seeing that freedom comes from what I do when I want to do it all on my own to God is going to give you a new heart that you love and fear and seek him with all your soul and with all your might. See, it's not freedom if you're seeking something that can never actually satisfy you. But it takes a work of God to change you, to make you new, to see him as the only thing that satisfies you because he is the only thing that satisfies you for you truly to be free. And that's what he's promising here in the new covenant. He says the time is coming when I'm going to do this. So how does that happen on the cross? How does that happen with what Jesus does on the cross? First Peter chapter two, you can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it to you. It's just two verses. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty four. He himself talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Right? Put that together with what Paul says, Second uh, Corinthians five, put it together with all the things that God is telling us. Jesus goes to the cross and he bears the wrath of God because of your sin and my sin and all those that would put their faith in him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. It's not his sin, but it's our sin. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. But listen to what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And I want you to understand what he's saying. That as Jesus takes your sins on himself, he deals with your sin and your sinful way of looking at things. Your inability to believe. Your inability of belief that centers around I'm saved by what I do and it's all about me. As he takes your sins on his body, he grants you the ability to believe. He opens your eyes to give you a new heart to understand that you're not the center of the world. That you cannot save yourself. That you cannot ultimately be satisfied by what you do seeking what you want in your sinful state. That it takes God bearing your sins on his body that we might die to that way of thinking and now live to righteousness. To be made new. And it's all what Jesus does and nothing else. And he does that work for us and by his wounds we are now healed. We have a new lens with which to see all things, which is this. We are hopefully lost in and of ourselves and we can't do it. And if I seek all the things that I want in and of myself, they will ultimately lead to futility. And that is not freedom. But in Jesus, he deals with our sin 
He gives us a new heart. We are now dead to sin, alive to righteousness. It's the same thing we looked at in Ephesians 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has caused you to become alive in Jesus, and now you're a new person. And what happens, as he says there in verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The one who created you and made you, made you to know and love him above all else, and then to love people out of an overflow with that, has now come and he's dealt with the thing that keeps you from seeing that. And he gives you a new heart. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And now you're a new creation and you are now free to follow hard after the things that will ultimately satisfy. The things that will bring peace and joy. And it's God himself and what he's done for us. And when we see that, it changes the lens of which we see everything. And when that happens, we're free to love God and then to love people and begin to follow hard after doing so. And here's the thing that happens. You are now free. You're free to pursue with all of your being the things that you were created for, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and love people out of an overflow for that. It's no longer this warped sense of it's about me and I do what I want whenever I want. And when we begin to live that way, the incredible thing is it's actually better. It is better. It's better to love God and to love people than to be in your own head and your own mess and your own stuff. And it's all about me all the time. I don't have to tell you that. If you've ever tried that before, it's miserable. And the reason it's miserable is you weren't created to be that way. But now in Christ, we have a new way in which to see all things. We now have literally a new heart. And I want you to understand when that happens, as God is working in you and he's regenerating you. He's doing what Jeremiah says is he's giving you this new way of thinking. He comes and invades your life in this way and you now come to faith. It doesn't just all click and now I've got it and now I'm completely selfless and I love everyone and everything's perfect. My old way of thinking is still there. I have a new way of seeing it. God is now dwelling in me. He's remaking me. But I'll continue to want to go back to my old way of thinking. I don't know about that. And I want you to think about this. We're continually bombarded with, we're continually discipled to believe by our culture that no, it's self-determination without limits. Don't go get involved with a church where they're going to ask you to do some things with other people and be involved with them and give of your life because that's going to infringe upon your freedom. That's what our culture would say. Don't get too invested because then you're going to be committed and then you're going to have to do some things. Right? But what the Bible says is then we do, and we begin to operate that way, and we begin to give ourselves to others. There's a joy that comes with living in the way God's created us to live. And so we start to do that, and, uh, I don't know. But over time, as we continue to do that, as we continue to step in and see God is the center of all things, my entire life is by what Jesus has done for me. 
every single bit about my identity is his. He's given me a new being. And I begin to step out and to live into that. There's a great joy that comes from that. And there's things that on the surface you go are going to impinge upon my freedom and they're going to be hard and they're going to be difficult. And you go, you know what, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to continue to do that. And you know what happens? It's actually better. You find out that God knows what he's talking about. It's actually better to, to spend your life loving with people and caring for them and walking with them and encouraging them in those things. It's way better than being all about yourself. It's way better than self-determination without limits. It's way better than the fake freedom that our world would offer. And so as we end this morning, I just want to end with this idea. Uh, Maybe you've heard it before. If you haven't, maybe it'll point you off to to read some of it or think about it a little bit. There's a pastor uh, in Minnesota named John Piper. If you've ever heard of John Piper, he's written about a million books. He's helped me greatly in my life, through my lifetime. But John Piper has this statement. He says he is a Christian hedonist. If you've never heard him say that before, you might be like, wait, what? Right? Hedonism is self-determination without limits. You seek the things that give you the greatest joy and abundance. Right? That's what a hedonist would say. I seek to fulfill my desires, whether sexual or eating or you know, games or fun or fast cars or whatever it is. That's what a hedonist would say. I do what I want when I want and I seek my joy to the greatest end. And John Piper says, I am a Christian hedonist. And he says, the reason he's a Christian hedonist is he is seeking his greatest joy. But the way you find your greatest joy is by seeking God in every part of your life and in every way. So it's not wrong to seek your joy, but the way your joy is going to be found is by making your life fully, completely, totally about Jesus and then loving others out of the overflow of it. And so he has this statement that he says it this way. God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. And what that turns into is is we are most joyful when God is most glorified and we are most satisfied in him. And that's what true freedom is. Free to pursue the things that are best for you. And seek them to the fullest, knowing that you won't be disappointed. That they will satisfy. That they will be better than anything else that is offered. And that's because you were created to love God and to love people with Him in the center of all things. That's what true freedom is. That's how Jesus purchases it it for us on the cross. And so as we come up to Easter and we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, we're going to have a service on Friday, our Good Friday service, where we just put all of our focus on the cross and what Jesus has done. And I want to encourage you as you think on those things the last few weeks of our identity, of the way we see forgiveness, of the way we seek freedom, that all of those find their fulfillment in Jesus and what He's done for us on the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the glorious freedom that is available through You and what You've done for us. I pray that You would show us afresh the reality of our identity in You. That we are desperately lost without You, but that You come and You make us new 
You give us a new lens and new eyes to see this world. I pray that you would help us to live out the fullness of what you've called us to, that we would make you the center of our being. I pray that we would truly believe that our greatest joy is found in you. When we are tempted to go after other things, that we would be reminded that it's fully and totally you and what you've done for us and that that would be at the heart of all that we do. The way that we love you and love others out of that. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.